New faces. Wonderful, wonderful. Really good. Blessing to be here with you today. Wonderful. Hey, let me ask you a question, but don't answer out loud. Are you wise? Don't answer, don't answer. In the last class, a man said, yes, I am. And immediately betrayed that he was not. <laughs> the, the quality of wisdom, do you, do, would you, do you think you possess it? Let me get a little stickier here. Look at the people to your right and left. Do you feel that you're sitting next to wise people? Yeah, look at that. Well, look at that. How do you know? How do you know? I mean, what is the giveaway for wisdom? Is it makeup? Is it the way someone combs their hair? How can you tell on the basis of mere externals whether someone is wise or not? For instance, let's put you to the test. Tell me if you think this guy is wise. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's a free country, but there's a better way to use that instrument. What about this guy? Is this guy wise? Yeah, that means no. That's a resounding no. So we're getting to it. Somehow we're now arriving at a conclusion about what wisdom ain't. It's not these guys. What about this guy? Yeah. See, this to me is a mystery of the universe. Two things. One, how did he do it? Two, why would he want to? Is this like your bucket list thing? Is this like your ambition? I've always dreamed of squeezing myself into this instrument of torture at the kids' playground. And uh, he's, it was easy to get a shot because he's still there. Now, listen. I want to know, since it seems to be three males who are in these shots depicting a lack of wisdom, are we to conclude that men are less wise than women? Yeah, well, thank you for that very unprejudiced, objective vote. Those of you who voted yes, how do you explain this? Yeah, there you go. It's Texas, folks. It's Texas. Welcome to Texas. Yeah, so you can see that the absence of wisdom knows no gender bounds. Um, so what are we talking about, this, this, this important, valuable commodity, wisdom? How do you, how do you define it? What, what is it? Well, this is what James says about it, James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So James is giving us a kind of a strong, clear hint on what wisdom is. It's behavioral. Let him who is wise, let him show it by his good behavior. So it's not a nebulous concept at all. One, from a biblical point of view, can be defined as being wise on the basis of good behavior is what James says here. And in fact, if there's a feel for gent- for, uh, for wisdom, if there's a feel for it, it would be gentleness, otherwise translated as humility. You might have that in your Bible. So a truly wise person is not necessarily someone laden with degrees and 
that kind of thing. It's someone who appears gentle and humble. Not a yes man or a yes woman. Not someone unduly passive. Not someone easily compromised. That's not what we're talking about. But it's just this spirit of gentleness and humility as opposed to arrogance and pride. That seems to characterize a wise person. From a biblical point of view, this is wisdom, skillful living. It's very practical, living with skill. That's the Hebrew concept of wisdom. If someone from a biblical perspective is said to be wise, that's a person who is skillful in living life, a person who makes good decisions about life and manifests it. And let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between knowledge and wisdom? Well, how would you distinguish between the two? Anyone? Yeah, what do you think? Oh, my goodness, you failed in your role. So, so... So is there anyone, please, anyone else? Oh, no. No, we got to do it because Dave gets men. So, so this is why we try not to call on Dave. This is just why. It's very unwise of me to call upon... So the tomato analogy, you know, and Dave has been waiting for like 15, possibly 20 years for the opportunity to hit us with the tomato thing. Is there anyone else who has something better? And really, anyone can. Yes, Rach. Uh, far better than Dave's. So knowledge is something you can get from books. Wisdom comes from experience. Yeah. What do you think, Ricky, baby? I would say that uh, knowledge is acquiring information. Ah. But wisdom is learning how to use it. So here's what Rick said, really good. Knowledge is acquiring information, but wisdom is learning how to use it. Do you agree with that one? Really, really good. So what we agree about is that there surely is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. In fact, someone... Uh, pointed out that uh, you can be plenty knowledgeable and still unwise. And this is what the person said. Knowledgeable people um, created the Internet. And knowledgeable people have a facility in using the Internet. But knowledgeable people can use it in a very unwise way. For instance, it could be a source of pornography for you. and You can get hooked on it. Or the Internet could be an opportunity for gambling away your material resources. So you see the distinction between knowledge and wisdom, two different things entirely. Wisdom, as has been said so well, is the application of truth to life so that life is lived more skillfully. One of our biggest problems today, tell me what you think, is it an the uh, lack of knowledge in society or lack of wisdom? Yeah, so we all agree. It's the lack of wisdom that's a real problem today. In fact, we possess more knowledge today than at any other time in human history. Someone has demonstrated that in an interesting way. This person said, if the knowledge accumulated from the beginning of history to 1845 were to be quantified, it would be about one foot deep. Let's just say. It's just a metaphor. 
knowledge in recorded human history up until 1845, about one foot deep. But the knowledge accumulated in 100 years, 1845 to 1945, would be three feet deep. And the knowledge accumulated from 1945, just 30 years, to 1975 would equal the height of the Washington Monument. And the knowledge accumulated since 1975 to the present is so great, it's absolutely beyond what any of us could calculate or imagine. It's at our fingertips. So lack of knowledge is surely not our problem at all. It's lack of wisdom. In fact, our increasing knowledge uh, really is causing problems because it looks like commensurate with our increasing knowledge is our decreasing wisdom and knowing how to use it. We're not better at using our knowledge. And so the Hebrew concept of wisdom, make no mistake about this, it's true in the Bible, is behavioral, not intellectual. Uh, it, It has to do with living out life. Once again, it has to do with skillful living. And so Uh, The scriptures would consider one to be wise who simply does the right thing. That's the biblical definition of wisdom. One who's prone to do the right thing about life decisions, financial, sexual, interpersonal. uh, The one who does the right things in those areas is a wise person. In his retirement, General Omar Bradley, remember him? General Bradley, he made this statement, the world has achieved brilliance without wisdom. And so he saw the vast difference between wisdom and knowledge, just as you have so well identified. Well, James would have us know in this text, it's not our titles, it's not our degrees or positions, it's our actions that define us as being wise or not so. And in fact, James identifies two premier attitudes that really, really define us as being foolish and not wise. And here they are. It's in verse 14. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, those are the two qualities which are counter to wisdom. He says, if these things characterize you, well, don't be arrogant, says he. Don't lie against the truth. The truth is, though you may lay claim to wisdom, if these things characterize you, you're lying against the truth. You're not wise. These two things, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. You know, the person who's motivated to get to the top at all costs, even no matter who you have to step on to get there, that's not a wise person. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. There was an eagle really jealous of another eagle. I should tell you this. This is not a true story. (laughs) There's a truth in it, but it's not true. So uh, one eagle saw this other eagle really flying much better and higher than he could. Then he also saw a hunter nearby with a bow and arrow. So the deficient eagle, who was quite jealous of the other, said to the hunter, I really wish you would shoot an arrow and kill that eagle. See, it's not true. Eagles don't talk. You knew this? I'm just saying. So the hunter says, I'd be glad to do it, but I need, I need feathers, you know, for my arrows. So the jealous eagle said, okay. So he plucks out a feather from his own person and gives it to the hunter who takes a shot at this eagle, but he misses badly because that eagle is flying so much higher. So the hunter says, I just need more feathers. So the eagle goes at it and he's just plucking all these feathers 
off of itself to the point where he, he couldn't fly at all. And the hunter saw this and killed him. He, he was useless at that point. What's the moral of the story? When you envy someone, who do you hurt? Yeah, he hurt you. That's why James says it's just, it's just not wise. To envy what another is, what another person has, it's just not good for you, for your health and, and well-being. It's not a good thing. Jealousy and selfish ambition, an inordinate desire for power or for prestige, that betrays a lack of wisdom. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be motivated and energized to to do good in life. That's not what it's talking about. But, but, but a kind of an addictive, out of control, unrestrained inclination to uh, have a position to be, to be powerful. I don't know. That could, be, that could be a sign of a lack of wisdom. You know, clever people get to high positions, but that only proves that they're clever. It doesn't prove that they're wise. <clears throat> One word proves that. Government. I mean, they're clever, people who get elected. That <clears throat> doesn't mean they're wise. So there's a big difference between the So James is saying, good, now you can boast all you want to about your personal virtue, but if these things characterize your life, don't lie. You're not very virtuous or wise at all. Jealousy and selfish ambition. That person is lying against the truth. And so James goes on to say now in verse 15, He says, we see this kind of wisdom, a wisdom characterized by those things. He says, uh, well, it descends not from uh, uh, above, but is earthy. Three characteristics, earthy, sensual, devilish. You may, translation may say demonic. Why? Because this kind of wisdom serves the devil's purposes, not God's. The kind of wisdom which kind of seduces one to be bent on uh, selfish ambition, climbing at all costs. There was a man named Emmanuel Ninger, N-I-N-G-E-R. Now, this story is true. He was a counterfeiter. He got busted. And he uh, specialized on counterfeiting $20 bills. It's a true story. Uh, When he got busted, the police raided his home and found in it three really wonderful paintings, apparently, that Emmanuel Ninger had created. It looks like he was quite a skilled artist. In fact, he was so skillful, that's how he counterfeited his $20 bills. In a very meticulous way, he studied the genuine article and reproduced it. Every stroke, every detail on it, he hand-painted one at a time, $20 bills, and he fooled people into thinking they were legitimate. Well, when police went to his apartment, they found these three paintings. They put them up at public auction, and each sold for in excess of $5,000 each. And then Ninger admitted, you know, it took me about the same amount of time to produce one counterfeit $20 bill as it did a painting that would sell for over $5,000. See, that's an illustration of a gifted man, even a clever man, who lacked wisdom. So you can see the difference between the two. And, and James says, well, that kind of wisdom, boy, that just emanates from the earth. That is just natural. That's just devilish, demonic stuff. James goes on to say in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. Every fallen 
disrupted organization is can give testimony to that <clears throat> in any sphere sphere even church if you have members of the team who are bent on jealousy and selfish ambition they're climbers sooner or later they will undermine the team and then the whole organization there has to be some unifying goal that each team member subordinates himself to the purpose uh, uh, is uh, you know like I love ours here to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world <clears throat> if the team members staff I'm talking about if, if, if the team members don't subsume their personal personal interest to the purpose of the community the higher goal and are bent instead on climbing and no matter what it takes oh boy look out Sooner or later, it'll undermine the organization. We don't want that to happen here. Thank God for a unifying vision uh, to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. And so now James is distinguishing this earthly kind of wisdom characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition to a wisdom, he says, it's wisdom that comes from above. It emanates from a different place. One, One is from the earth, the other is from above. In other words... Human wisdom comes from reason. Divine wisdom comes from revelation. You don't have it by nature. It comes from revelation from on high. And it is distinguished from human natural wisdom in various ways. Uh, God's wisdom, wisdom that comes from on high, it says, is first pure. What does that mean? It's unmixed. It's all of God. That's what it means. It's not a little bit of God's wisdom uh, you know, intermingled with a little bit of human wisdom. It is all of God, and that's why God-less people hate it and are repulsed by it. It's just that. It's uncompromised. It's not negotiated. It's not watered down. It's just pure. It's all from on high. It's all untainted. It's all of God. Furthermore, it's peaceable is what it says. You know, the wisdom of the world, you can say, is a wisdom of winning. Win, that's the goal. Win over this one. Win over that one. You know, but the wisdom of the Bible is not that. The wisdom of the Bible, no, is peaceable. It's a wisdom of peacemaking and of reconciliation. It doesn't mean you keep your mouth shut. It doesn't mean you, you don't state your opinion. It doesn't mean you don't point out wrongdoing. But behind it all is the goal of peacemaking and reconciliation, bringing members together, not apart. That's the nature of wisdom from on high. It's gentle, the text says. It's reasonable. It can be reasoned with. It's a kind of wisdom that listens, that heeds advice. This is a little counterintuitive because you may think a truly wise person has all the answers and doesn't need advisors, counselors, and all the rest. The opposite is true. A truly wise person seeks the counsel of an abundance of counselors, doesn't resist it nor resent it, but values it. It's the kind of wisdom that's full of mercy and good fruits. And furthermore, it's unwavering, unwavering. I was going to offer to you as an illustration the names of two people, a married couple in this church who I think really exemplified this kind of unwavering wisdom. But I don't want to do it because I thought about, well, there are many like them here. Thank God we're blessed. What does this mean? It means you experience life's hardships. And you don't waver in your faith even during them. 
It's a remarkable quality. It's not you. You're not so virtuous. It's not inherently yours. You've acquired it. It's come from on high. Somehow you've found the path to wisdom. You've laid hold of it. And you can see it in your life. So I think of a woman in this church who I know well, and she has had some very serious medical issues over months and has gone through very trying, difficult times. And I think of her husband, who's obviously been burdened for his ailing wife. And on top of this, there have been many things that have come to be on this man's shoulders. But I watch this lady, very like a princess of faith. <laughs> I just I didn't say she doesn't hurt. I didn't say she doesn't fear. I didn't say any of that. That, that. Don't be ridiculous. Of course she does. She's a human. And yet what emerges is this inexplicable confidence in an unseen God, her Savior. Somehow she believes in the sovereignty and goodness of God. He's still sovereign. She does not believe cancer is calling the shots. She believes her Savior is. She's not bowing down to cancer. It's a reality that's been thrust upon her. But she doesn't worship at the throne of cancer. She worships Almighty God, the great physician. Somehow somehow she believes, even through it, he's not abandoned her and can even make good use of this. Isn't that remarkable? Wow, wow, wow. And then the husband, too, has had opportunities to go fleshly about all this which is upon him to act out in various ways, none of which have taken place. He walks with God. Literally, he goes out. Every night he walks to clear his head, to pour out his heart. He's running to God. She's running to God when they would have had every reason to go in the other direction, to be angry too. Don't get me wrong if you've been angry with God. That's just all of us. I'm talking about as a pattern of life. You know, the pattern you see is confidence even in the face of an inexplicably difficult situation. That's wisdom from on high. It has an unwavering quality. Circumstances don't shake your confidence in the God you know can relieve them and is choosing not to for now. Wow. You don't get that from a self-help group. You don't get that from a book. You get that from on high. How do you access that? I'll tell you in a second. Hang in there. And then it says this kind of wisdom is without hypocrisy. You know what that means? It means sincere. No masks, no disguises, no concealing of motives, authentic in an organization. If a member does not have this kind of wisdom which produces authenticity and sincerity, the organization that doesn't deal with it will soon be undermined by it. You cannot have a team member who is one way in a meeting and then another way behind people's backs. That's earthly, demonic wisdom that undermines. A person who will not go to another staff member face-to-face, but does things in a circuitous way, but smiles at you in the meetings, cannot be. An organization that allows it to be is not being godly, it's being foolish. It must be confronted. Oh, the view always, repentance, reconciliation, and so on. But still has to be dealt with and eradicated. That wisdom is devilish. It serves the devil's purposes. doesn't mean you can't fight, you can't state your opinions, but you could be direct about it. All this undercurrent of stuff while you smile at, at a person face to face. 
Where'd you get that? Man, that is just the way the deceiver, the evil one operates. But the quality of wisdom, which comes from on high, no, no, no. It conceals no motives. It tells you what's going on. It's authentic. Even throws a microphone down from time to time. But, but at least you know what you got. Broken microphone. In verse 18, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this is the, the one of the marks of God's wisdom is uh, one increasingly wise becomes more of a peacemaker, a resolver of conflict, a reducer of tension, a reconciler of adversaries. A wise person is one who kind of... Uh, de-escalates a situation instead of escalating it. I have a son. He's, he's, a, he's a cop. He's a homicide detective, and, and, uh, but he used to be on patrol in a bad area, rough area. And my, one of my other, his name is Ben. My oldest son, Tim, <clears throat> went on a ride-along with him when my son was in a patrol car. He went on a ride-along. You can do this. You fill out paperwork in advance, and you ride along. You see how your taxpayer... Your tax dollar is being used or something. I don't know. So they're riding together, and then there was an incident. Something was happening. So my son, Ben, the cop, said to my other son, sit tight, do this, do that, you know, whatever. And then he went out to the scene. And my son, Tim, called me the next day. He said, Dad, you don't know Ben. So what are you talking about? He said, he is just different on the street. What are you talking about? He said he could de-escalate a scene like I have never seen in my life. So I called Ben. I said, Ben, your older brother, this is rare, paid you a compliment. <laughs> and I told him what, what was going on. He said, I said, well, what's the secret? How would you do this? He said, Dad, I look like you, meaning we're small. I'm a small cop. I can't go on to a scene and assert my physical uh, imposing stature because thanks to you, I don't have one. That's what he said, rotten kid. So, so he said, I have learned I have to de-escalate a scene verbally. And he said, it actually is an advantage to me over the bigger cops because, because they're bigger. They go physical too soon. They escalate a scene. I have to calm it down. So I thought, man, he just inherited quite a good quality from his mother. You don't get that from me. But anyway, um, that's a quality of godly wisdom where there's conflict or something and and your interest, intent, and skill level is on de-escalating it, not on adding fuel to the fire, as it it says. Now, this is wonderful and an attractive commodity. We would all like this kind of wisdom. How do you get it? Well, I consulted wisest man who the Bible tells us ever lived. It was Solomon, wisest man. Can you imagine this scenario? God comes to you and says to you, what do you want? Name it. I'll give it to you. Just tell me what you want. Could you handle that? I don't know. I mean, I'd be thinking of all kinds of stuff. I'd like the Rockets to win the championship again. You know, real important stuff. I mean, I would blow, you know, what? Whatever. I'd like to have some fresh material to use against Chuck Schneider. You know, these real base 
kind of considerations here. What would you, how would you handle that? Well, that's the very scenario that confronted Solomon. God said to him, I'm not making this up. It's recorded for us in Second Chronicles. I'll read to you. God said, ask me whatever you want. I'll, I'll do it for you. Here's what it says, Second Chronicles chapter 1. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Solomon said to God, you have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge. Oh, that's what he asked for. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can rule this great people of yours? Solomon asked for this, wisdom. He could have asked for power and position and popularity and all the rest. He asked for wisdom. Why? I think it's for this reason. He was alive and realized he was. And being alive confronted him with a sometimes harsh reality, and that is there's nothing you can do about life. You can't get out of it. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Sure, there are ways out of it. You can terminate it. No, that is not a legitimate approach to life. We're not allowed to do that. You can think about terminating your life, and most of the people there have from time to time. I'm one of them. You just can't act on it. I mean, the reason you can't act on it is because you don't own you. You're not self-generated. Your existence is due to another. Therefore, he owns you. That's almighty God. Therefore, to terminate your life is to terminate the life belonging to somebody else. There's no such thing as suicide. It's actually 180-degree murder. It's homicide. You're taking the life of someone that belongs to another, you. So... That stinks because we don't even have that option. You just got to live life. I think Solomon realized that. I think he thought about the ways to get out of it, and there's no way to get out of it. He was trapped in life. And so I think he came to this conclusion, well, doggone it, if I'm here and I got to live this, I might as well get better at it. Therefore, he asked for wisdom, which is skill in living life. That's what he did. That's how wise he was. He knew I might as well make the best of this. I can't get out of this life until God gets me out of it. It has to be in his time and his terms. Therefore, I might as well get more skillful in living it. And that's why he has for wisdom. And Solomon, furthermore, tells us how we could acquire this kind of a wisdom. And it's recorded for us here in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Solomon wrote this. He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what Solomon said. Solomon, the wisest man ever to have lived, said the path to wisdom starts with respect, a kind of respect for God. A correct attitude towards God, says Solomon, is the foundation for wisdom. And Solomon refers to this correct attitude towards God as the fear of the Lord. And that always strikes fear into people because the English translated word fear is just different than what it says in the original text. It's not fear in the sense of quivering and shaking in your boots. It's respect. That's what it means. I mean, you don't want your children or grandchildren trembling in your midst, do you? That's an abusive imposition of authority that you may be guilty of. But you do want your children and grandchildren to have a healthy kind of respect for you. You could be friendly to them, but you should never be their friend. You know, I hear parents say this. I want to be my child's friend. What are you, crazy? They get friends 
They need a mom. They need a dad. You can be friendly, but not their friend, because that means you have to re- reduce yourself to their love. That means you've got to start getting tattooed and piercings. You're not going to look good in that stuff. Look at you. That's not going to work. You want to be friendly to the kid. And that's how it is. That's what it means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a kind of respect for him and who he is. So what in particular is Solomon saying we ought to respect God for? I'd like to offer two things. One is his very existence. We should respect the very existence of God. Well, you see, that's a no-brainer. Really? <clears throat> there are atheists, maybe even some here. And, and by the way, if you're here, God bless you, which is kind of a humorous way. To, <laughs> atheists, atheists. Um, statistically, uh, the, the ideology of athe- atheos, the A negates what comes after. Theos, like from theology, is a Greek word for God, no God. So the no God crowd really are statistically few. I know some are quite popular and you see them on TV, but, but they don't represent a whole like mass of people. Most people who are surveyed, surely in here, even out there, are theists. They believe in the existence of God, some kind of God. I mean, every Gallup poll reveals that, it, you know, the vast majority of Americans will say, of course, I believe in God. In fact, if you share your faith with someone, you say, do you believe in God? Sure. Most people are going to say, sure. And yet most people are not living really in light of the actual existence of God. Therefore, I think we could refer to them as practical atheists. They're not ideological atheists, meaning they will deny that they deny the existence of God, but they're living as if God doesn't exist. What does that mean? It means you come and go as you please. You handle your material stuff the way you please. You do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. That means though you say you believe in the existence of the true God, you are actually usurping his authority and putting yourself on the throne of your own life. No, but, but what Solomon is saying, no, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You respect his very existence. You know what that means? You say, God is, and I am not he. See, when your mind says they're God, what are you talking about? Just watch the way people live out their lives. You make your own decisions. You do your own thing. You refuse to live by anybody else's restraints. You're God. You've made yourself the highest authority over your life. That means you've made yourself God. No, Solomon is saying that's a very foolish position. If you want to start the process of getting wisdom from on high, you have to respect the existence of God. You have to acknowledge God is, and you are not him. That's the first thing, the existence of Proverbs 3, verses uh, 5 and 6. You know this, I'll bet. Um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways do what acknowledge him that means respect the existence of god in all your ways acknowledge him and what happens he will make your path straight so you see the road to wisdom is to first acknowledge the existence of god and then the second thing it seems to me is to acknowledge the transcendence of god 
See, the existence of God could get us in trouble because God came near. We could be on such familiar terms, we think, that we have lost respect for the transcendence of the God who has, in fact, come near. Look at Jesus came near. He's God. He's pre-existent. He had no beginning nor end. That can only be said of God. He pre-existed before the world was, before matter, he was. And then he entered into our closed system. It's a closed system you and I are trapped in. It's called space and time. We can't get out of it. We can't get out of today until tomorrow. And we can't get out of this space. I defy anyone to try to get through that wall. It's just not going to work. I don't care who you think you are. We're trapped in space and time. It's a closed system, but it doesn't confine the creator. He exists outside of this closed system. But he entered into it. He came near. To do it, he had to reduce himself by taking on enfleshment. And in so doing, boy, could he relate to the human condition and can humans relate to him. Are you hungry? He experienced hunger. Are you tired? He got tired. You know, all the rest. What is the one thing we experienced that Jesus never did? Sin. He didn't sin. Now, hang on. I know what you're saying on the cross. Yeah, but that wasn't his sin. That was our sin. He took upon himself. So you can get so comfortable with the uh, presence and nearness of God that you get a little too sloppy and familiar. Therefore, to balance it out, we need to remember the transcendence of God. You see, he did come near in the, in the person of Jesus, but he's transcendent. He transcends everything we cannot. For instance... Jesus transcends sin, but we can't. There's not a person in here left to himself or herself can transcend the inclination to sin. just comes naturally, folks. We sin in thought and word and deed. We do it because we like it. We do it because we can. We do it because we can't stop doing it. Left to ourselves, we cannot transcend even sin. But Jesus can. I know he's come near, and I know he became in flesh just like you and I, but he did not sin. He transcends sin. God transcends space. He transcends time. And so the beginning uh, step to the path of wisdom is to acknowledge not only the existence and presence of God, but also his transcendence. He's not, he's not the co-pilot. He's not the big guy upstairs. If your kids spoke to you like that, you ought to smack them. That's a disrespectful kind of a deal. I know some parents let their kids call them by their first name. Do what you want. It's a free country. But what? No, you don't do that. You don't do that. It's not to make them afraid of you. It's to so love them that you require that they respect you. Well, that's how God is. Very familiar, very approachable. Come to me. What an invitation. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Just really, really great. But come to him acknowledging who you're coming to. Wow. Almighty God, transcendent deity. So I think Solomon is essentially saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord means the kind of respect for him, which at least acknowledge that he is. Live in light of his existence. And second, live in light of his transcendence that's the beginning of wisdom solomon said this is how things 
start out. You have to, if you want skill in living life, you have to start with the right starting point. And the right starting point is the fear of the Lord. And so if you haven't begun with an acknowledgement of God's existence and transcendence, you can't have, you cannot have wisdom. And it could be that some in here have not really quite done that. I would encourage you to acknowledge the existence, the presence of Almighty God. I don't want to scare you, but there's no place to run. There's just some realities to deal with. He's there even when the lights go out. You're not fooling anybody. You have to make do with this God who sees in the dark. David one time cried out, where can I go from thy presence? Where can I flee from thy spirit? There is no place. Might as well deal with reality, the existence of God. Second, his transcendent, he transcends your sinfulness with his holiness. He's all-powerful. He's the God with whom you have to make do. He came near to build a bridge. He did it through Jesus. How? I don't have any idea. But it doesn't keep me from accepting it. I don't know how God became man. I don't know how that worked out. Oh, I know it. It, it happened. Absolutely. I just I don't understand it. I'm perfectly fine not understanding all about the transcendent deity. But I know Jesus came near and built a bridge because how am I going to get to this transcendent God? You can't get to him. I can't get to him. So Jesus came. You know, the Bible refers to him as a mediator, someone who stands between two warring parties. And it even says there's one God and one mediator. There's not many. One mediator between God and man. And just in case we're filled with speculation, the writer says, he's the man, Christ Jesus. It's as if Jesus came and said, give me your hand. And if we voluntarily put our hand into his hand, he can then join our hand to the Father's hand. Why? Because he, he's, he's the son of man. He, he relates to humankind, but for sin. And he's the son of God. <laughs> he's fully deity. There's no other suitable mediator. And if you've not acknowledged the very presence and existence and nearness of almighty God and the transcendence of God, if you're not come to him through Jesus the Son. You cannot have the wisdom described here in this text. I don't care how many courses of study you take and all the rest. You cannot have this kind of wisdom. This comes from on high. I would encourage you before you leave today, you can do this, you can say, you see, because he's so transcendent, he can transcend your silence <laughs> and he can read your heart. And in your heart, even as we sit here, you could say, I got it now. I acknowledge your being, your existence. I acknowledge your transcendence. I acknowledge that you built a bridge that I can, even I can cross over by faith. I accept Jesus as the mediator, as the one who suffered and died. He had no sin. He must have died for mine because he doesn't have any of his own. I need a personal savior because I have personal sin. I can't be saved by being in a group. <laughs> I need a personal savior because I have committed personal sin. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Come into me. Please begin in me the process of imparting to me the kind of wisdom I cannot acquire through traditional means. It has to be unconventional means. I need help out of this world. I need help from on high. 
Solomon said that's a very, very valuable commodity. And he says you cannot acquire this, even by growing old. You know what happens when you grow old? Your hip hurts, your gut sciatica, and your hair turns color. That's what happens. You don't automatically become wise. I know like a whole host of old, real, foolish people. I mean, foolishness knows no, does not discriminate against age. You don't just get wise by, by getting old. But the path to wisdom is available to folks of any age, and Solomon spells it out. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not enough. You have to continue the process, but it's the fear of the Lord that starts the process. If you start trying to live life more skillfully with not, without acknowledging the existence and transcendence of the giver of life, what a foolish thing to try to do. Therefore, the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. Now, our world, it seems to me, is crying out for people who are wise. It's in total disarray. Holy Toledo. It's unbelievable. People, therefore, are looking for folks who have made a better go of life. Everybody is struggling. I'll tell you who gets their attention. Someone who seems to be making a better go of life. The world is really, really looking for wise people. Now, some teachers and preachers say, here's the key to winning unsaved people. You must lay claim to health and wealth. Do it. Believe it. Speak it into existence. Obligate God to give you health and wealth. There's nothing wrong with being healthy and wealthy, in my opinion. There's nothing wrong with asking God for it. But to think that's the key to win people to Christ defies Scripture. You talk about a miracle worker. Jesus pulled off some stuff that's unbelievable. A lot of people saw it. You know what a good number of them said to him? said about him crucify him crucify him the miraculous doesn't convert the soul automatically only faith in the work of god's spirit does that so no i don't think health and well in fact i think if we were all healthy and wealthy it would separate us from the rest of humanity listen here you're you have cancer and you're being treated at md anderson and uh, you got a roommate in the next bed you got the same form of cancer. You got the same doctor treating you. You got the same lousy insurance. And your roommate watches you. You cry. You weep. You're a human. You're a Christian, but that doesn't remove your humanity. <clears throat> and yet your roommate hears you say stuff, stuff like, yet I know God is using this for good. And your roommate sees you with a Bible right there on the on your table and you read it from time to time and your roommate hears you talk about this God and your roommate is absolutely perplexed because God by definition should be able to change your circumstances but is choosing not to your God has you in the same circumstance I'm in what is your God doing for you and yet your roommate then sees but there's this thing that seems to help that person approach this differently than me This person is not happy about all this. That's crazy stuff. But this person has confidence that the God who is there has not abandoned her. This person still believes that God is in control and that God is good and can use this for good. If Christians were immune to the throes of life that befall others, I want to know how we could display wisdom. 
Christians had all the wealth and money that TV people tell you that you can have by laying claim to it, then I want to know how needy and poor people could relate to us. You tell me. But when you're between jobs and you're struggling with the rent, then you can look someone in the eye and say, I know exactly what you're experiencing now. How could you know? Well, because I've experienced it. What did you do? Well, this may not make sense to you, but I acknowledge the reality of a God who is there and who has not abandoned me even through this. And what's more, I can see how God used it. How could God have used this? Well, God used it to enhance my sense of dependence on him. Otherwise, I would walk away, perhaps like you. So the very thing that some people say will attract people to our faith actually could repel them from it. If you people think you got it together, you could have all the health and wealth you want just by, I don't know what. How do you relate to the rest of humankind? I'll tell you, however, what will attract unsaved people to us, if not health and wealth. Wisdom in living life. If we divorce like they divorce, oh, that's different. If we drink like they drink, if we smoke like they smoke, if we cuss like they cuss, if we go to the same stupid movies over here that they go to, if we wear the same clothing the same tight, low cut, whatever the deal is. We don't look any wiser. If our kids are just as rebellious, if our debt is just as high, if our attitude towards the government is just as disrespectful, if we're cheating our employer by not giving a good full day's work, if, we're, if we're, we show no more skill in living life than that, we won't attract them. So I'll tell you one of the things I like about this church. There are many, but one is, that's what we want to do. We want to be more skillful in living life. And we believe it's not a function of IQ or intellect. We believe it's a function of a growing personal relationship with the all-wise God. And I know you believe that too. That's why you're here right now. We try to grow together. We try to learn more. We want the mind of Christ to prevail. And let me tell you this, um, as one of the ministers in this church, one of the privileged ministers in this church, to be in this church, a good deal of my time is spent during the week, and by the way, gladly, gladly, meeting with people who, I don't mean to hurt you, but let me be honest, are in the situation they're in because they've made unwise decisions. Now, what what do you do then? What do you mean, what do you do then? You lovingly and patiently try to help them now deal with the consequences of those unwise decisions. But I must be honest, some of the consequences will not go away. They're the consequences of unwise decisions. They're not the punishment of Almighty God. He loves us. But when we do things that are outside of his will, he doesn't punish us. The consequence, however, is... Well, we've made unwise choices, and now we live with the consequence thereof. But let me tell you this. If your present situation is characterized by unwise past decisions, that doesn't mean you have to feel the permission to keep making unwise decisions. (laughs) The past is the past. We really can't do anything about that except come before a merciful and gracious God 
and ask him to restore and help us in spite of us? Of course he will. And then we can start making better decisions, that's all. Make wiser decisions today than we did in the past. Relationally, sexually, recreationally, all, all the rest. We could just be making wiser decisions. But what's the, how do you know how? What's the path to it? Once again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Acknowledge his existence. You're not a free agent. There he is. Acknowledge his transcendence. He's above and beyond. He's the king above all kings. He's the highest authority. Bow before him. Submit your will to his will. Being a free agent is not freedom. It's actually bondage. You've experienced it. So have I. That's why that's what we do most of the week. We counsel to people who are now in bondage. I can't turn from this. I can't turn from that. I can't give up this. I can't give up that. So you see the so-called freedom. You see how Satan has fooled us? The so-called exercise of freedom (gasps) has now caused us to be mastered by stuff. We need help getting over. You can get it. Please, don't beat yourself to death. Let's be constructive here, not destructive. If you've been consequenced by unwise decisions, ask God for wisdom from now on. Do what Solomon did. Oh, God. Above all things I may want, I need wisdom. Please give me wisdom. Do you think God will say no? There's a verse in James. We looked at it a million years ago. It's in chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Let him ask. Well, I hope we continue to be a church community. I believe we will who in the years ahead are seeking to live life more skillfully. And we know the way to do it is to fear, to respect Almighty God. And because we do, Lord Jesus, we bow. We won't before anyone else, but we do. We do bow before you out of respect, not undue fear. Thank you that from your high position, you are aware of everything that befalls us. You see, you are transcendent. And thank you for your very presence. You are Emmanuel. Look how we could access you. Your throne characterized by grace. We're in good shape, Lord. We can become better in living life, more skillful. We stumble and fall from time to time, but that doesn't justify continuing that way. We pray that you might help us to be wiser, more skillful in living life, managing finances, time, relationships, our bodies, all the rest. Oh, God, we pray for wisdom, not as an end in itself, but that in being more skillful in living life, those people whose lives are in disarray may be attracted to us and ask us to give an answer for the hope that is in us. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Lord willing, we'll see you next time for more of James. Excuse me, sir. Only pay for what you need with Liberty Mutual. Thanks.
In the morning.